listen to your body. If I hadn't, it would have spread. And by the time they pick it up, it will be too late. So listen to your bodies first and then do something about it. Go to your GP. Take the right steps. And if you get a diagnosis that you don't understand, ask questions. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Wita L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect. How obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy. Episode 35. I have my first international guest with me today, Dr. Dai Kuku, or better known as Dr. K. She is a general practitioner in the United Kingdom. She is a leader within the National Health Services, NHS, and a dynamic public speaker. She is actively involved in decisions and policymaking within the National Health Services. She speaks at conferences, seminars, and radio shows. She is a widow and a mother of two wonderful daughters. Her platform is Healing Beyond Healthcare, intersection of faith and medicine. She is also passionate about all things regarding women's health, contraception and cervical health, health promotion, and COVID-19 vaccinations. Her mission is to provide health education so people can make informed decisions concerning their health so they can live their best life, body, soul, and spirit. I was fortunate enough to meet Dr. K on a COVID panel. Through Healing Zone, she empowers and supports people who have experienced any form of illness, which can be physical, psychological, or emotional, to live a transformed and wholesome and fulfilled life. I was fortunate enough to meet Dr. K on a COVID-19 vaccine panel. Please welcome her to the show. Thank you again for joining me today, Dr. K. Hello, Ida. I'm very grateful. I feel honored to be on your platform. Thank you for the invite. First, I just want to start with what made you decide to go into medicine? Whoa, that's a great question. So um, while I was young, I loved looking after people. I had relatives that were doctors and I loved the white coat, you know, in those days you put on the white coat and you know, the look of authority. So I thought, oh, this is not bad. But I then went and did um, a shadowing with one of my uncles and I loved it to bits. I, I went on a ground round, a ward round, and it was like the questions and the challenge. And I thought, whoa, this is for me. So I said to my parents, I said, I want to be a doctor. And they were excited because I'm back in Africa. There's certain professions that they want you to do. So you're either a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, or an architect. And if you are those, you make the good family name. So I said to my parents, I said, I want to be a doctor. And they were very excited. 
Well, I went to my uncle and I said to him, I said, whom I shadowed, I said, I'd like to be a doctor. He said, no, do you want to be as miserable as me? And I thought, mm, that doesn't sound good. But I still said to him, I said, you know what? I enjoyed it. That's what I'm going for. And I have never looked back. I do not regret it. It's a passion. I enjoy every bit of it. I couldn't be anything else for a doctor. So that's why I'm Dr. K. Okay, Dr. K. <laughs> so can you briefly describe the difference between the medical systems in the UK versus the United States as far as training and okay. compensation and insurance. Okay, so I'm not too conversant with the American system, but I know a bit because my daughter, so I have two daughters, 30 and 28, and my younger one is a medical doctor. So when she was younger, she thought, oh, mom, I want to study medicine, but I'm going to do it in the States. And I thought, really? And that was when I came to learn a bit about studying medicine in the States. So I actually studied medicine in Nigeria. Okay. which is my country of origin. I was born in the UK, but my origin is Nigeria. So I studied medicine in Nigeria. I qualified in 1987. And out there, what you do is you can either go straight into medical school or you can do what we call a preliminary. So what I did after secondary school for the five years, you go to advanced level, which is two years. So after secondary school, I went to advanced level. But while I was in the one year of advanced level, I did the exam into university and I passed it. So I skipped the advanced level and went straight into medical school as a pre preliminary. The preliminary is sort of like a one-year crash course preparing you for medical school. And then it was five years study. After I did that, I then worked. Is secondary school considered high school? Yeah, high school. Yeah, our, our, our language is very different. And I remember, I'm sorry, just a distraction. Okay. I once came over to the United States and um, I was at the market. And, you know, here, here, we're very, very, we use very polite words. So I was like saying, excuse me, excuse me. And they just looked at me and they kept going past me. And I was like, you're going to stay there, hey, you? And I go, oh my God. <laughs> so my excuse me, excuse me was like, you're going to stay there for a long time. You've got to get on with it. <laughs> so I find, I find the different things very different. You know, when we say, we say bathroom, I think out there you say restroom. So the words, the wordings. Restroom, yeah. I think is, I consider like when you're at a restaurant or like more formal versus at your house, I yeah. call it the bathroom. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, there are some things that come to mind, but I'm not going to mention those ones because those are quite intimate. Where okay. I think, okay. oh my God, this is different. Okay, yeah. So that's high school. And then you do five years. So I then did the five years. And then after that, you then do what we call internship. I think you do that in the States yes. also. So you do an internship for, yeah, for one year. And then you decide what you want to do, whether you want to go into a specialty or not. So I did all that. And what I went into was I went into um, general, sort of like family practice is what I okay. call it. So back in Nigeria, I actually did emergency medicine because I like to be on the go. I like action, action, action. I just like to see people come in. No matter how poorly you are, get you better and see you go home. So I did emergency medicine for a long time. Um, but um, about 10 years after graduation, after qualification, I relocated to the United Kingdom with my family. But the thing in there was once you relocate, because you qualified abroad, you need to do a requalification exam. You do the same in America. So if I want to come to the States and to practice medicine, I'll have to do the conversion exam. So I then had to do the conversion exam. And because I hadn't done exams for a very long time and there was change, life happened and all sorts, it took me about a year or two to get my exams going. 
So then I passed it. And once I passed it, I then thought about it. And even though I loved doing um, emergency medicine, I did it for about two or three years in the United Kingdom. But it was difficult. It was hard because I had two young children. And when you do emergency medicine, you have a lot of shifts going on. So mm-hmm. it, it was very difficult. I got people to look after the children, but sometimes I come back from work and they tell me I'm leaving. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm on shift tonight. What am I going to do? So it was very stressful. Yeah. So I thought I needed to change that. So then I, I went into a training program again and decided to be a general practitioner. Okay. A general practitioner is the equivalent of family practitioner in the States. Okay. And you just see your own, your own surgery. The difference um, from there on, and I've been a family practitioner since then. So I've been a doctor for over 33 years and I've been a family practitioner for about 17 years in the UK. Okay. So the difference between the UK and the States then comes to when in the UK, it's a welfare system. So everybody is entitled for as long as you're registered in the UK, you have leave to stay, you're entitled to free care, free okay. health care. So we don't pay for our health care. Um, and then you have certain groups that get free prescription. So, for example, if you're diabetic, if you have hypothyroidism and so many other ailments, you get free prescription. And then if you're on welfare, if you're on income support, which is welfare benefits, you mm-hmm. get free prescription. So that's that's a wonderful system to go by. But for someone like me that works my socks off, I have to pay for everything because I don't get anything free. Mm-hmm. And then in the UK, we do not have too much of private practice. So in the UK, when you become a family practitioner, you have several rules. You can either be a partner. So a partner means you're part of the business. Okay. So you join a group of colleagues and you run, you run it as a business. I did that for about 12 years, but then my husband took ill and I had to look after him and he put strain on the partnership. So I had to pull out of that um, because they supported me for long enough. But after a while, it just wasn't working. So I thought, oh, I pulled out of that. So the first route is the partnership. When, if you're not a partner, then you can be a salary GP. A salary GP simply means you get a wage a month, every month. And to go with that, you have set work. So as a salary GP, you work from certain hours to certain hour. So in the UK, you probably work from 8 to 6.30 p.m. And you don't do outside that. When you're a partner, you carry work home because the work has to be done. Whether okay. you don't have time limits, the work has to be done. That's just the bottom line. It's like running a business. You don't say, ah, it's eight o'clock. I can't do this. So that's the advantage of being a salary GP. But being a salary, the disadvantage is the fact that the pay is very small. Okay. The pay is very, very miserly pay. Really? So I'll give you an example. So I'm a, I'm a general practitioner, but I'm also what you call a portfolio GP. A portfolio GP is someone who does several things. So I do leadership stuff. So I'm a leader within the NHS and I do policies, I do protocols, I sit on boards, I am I'm in the decision making panel. So that's what you call a portfolio GP. Then also I do out of hours. Out of hours is going back to my roots. So remember I said I started with emergency medicine. So out of hours is in the UK the day the GP surgery runs from eight o'clock to six thirty. At six thirty every surgery is closed. But the healthcare is 24 hours. When the surgeries are closed, you have the out-of-hours takeover. So from 6.30 to 8 a.m. when the surgery is open, the out-of-hours takeover. And with the out-of-hours, it's usually commissioned to to an organization who runs it. The organization then employs GPs to do the shift. So you can imagine with the out-of-hours, during the week, you have mainly two shifts. So you have the 6.30 to maybe about 11 p.m. 
and then you have 11 p.m. to about 8 a.m. And different organizations could change those timings. Over the weekend, you have it staggered depending on what the needs are. So um, I do out of hours, which simply means that I do general practice one day mm-hmm. a week. Mm-hmm. I do out of hours based on how I want to do it. So mm-hmm. the way it works is that it's a motor system. You bid for it and they give you shifts. Okay. So it's like taking in extra shifts. Like exactly. Taking call. Ex- yeah, yeah, that's like being on call. But why did I go into that? I said being a salary GP is very miserly. My pay for a month is what I get from one and a half shifts, one night shift. No, let's say not even two night shifts. One and a half night shift is my pay for four weeks. Wow. As a salary GP. So I couldn't, I couldn't survive as a salary GP. And I'm bearing in mind that I do only one day a week. So most GPs will do three to four days a week, but I do only one day a week because I do so many other things. And I'm thinking I just need to balance it out. But why did I say, why did I say that with my out of hours, I can earn good money Mm -hmm. compared to if I'm doing general practice, I'm not doing out of hours because of the money, but I'm the only reason why I'm doing one day a week is because of my portfolio. So doing the, the other days, I use it to attend meetings, to write up policies, to do protocols. And then I then balance it out. The days I am not too busy during the day, I can do a night shift and that pays very well. So that, that's how that runs. There are not too many GPs that do that because for you to do the out of hour service, you have to be very experienced. It's, um, it's an emergency service where you don't have access to the patient's records. So you have to be on the ball. You have so to you be don't have to. access to the patient's records? Not at all. The only access you have is to their medication. It's work in progress. They're trying to build a system to make that happen, but it hasn't been for a long time. So you have to be very experienced. You have to be able to make immediate decisions and you have to be able to deal with emergencies. So not too many GPs deal with, actually go for those sheets. But I've done this for so many years. It's, it's a second nature to me. So I can, I can sort of, within two, three minutes, I can know what's happening. And I can know what line of... Uh, what That's interesting. Of. I thought our system was bad as far as records. <laughs> no, <laughs> I thought no. our system was bad as far as records, but it's usually a way you can get to them. But if you have no access at all yeah. in the yeah. after hours, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, the, 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 the reason being... So I must say, having said that, I must say it's different in different areas. Mm-hmm. So the organization I work for, because we use different platforms. So the reason why we don't have access is the platform we use during the day in the surgery, it's not what the out-of-hour system uses. uses. And they don't have any connection between the yeah. two. So now they have a bit of connection. I can see what their past medical history is. I can see what their medication is. But I cannot see the train of what's been happening on the patient's record because they haven't connected that yet. So it's work in progress, I, especially with the lockdown. It has become very important that we have that. But I think it's digital technology that is failing. And because in the UK, different practices, which are also called surgeries have different systems. They use different systems to access the patients. So you imagine different, the out-of-hours organization, they all use different systems. The GP surgeries use different systems. So what they're trying to do in the UK now is to, to sort of normalize, just make sure all the practices are using the same system, especially in a, in, in a particular area, standardize the, the systems so that the, the struggle is lesser. So if out of hours is standardized and GP practice is standardized, you can then begin to talk to each other with um, lack of variation. And I think that's where we are right now. That's interesting to hear about different medical systems. It is. And I think um, finally, I'll just go talk about the insurance. So in America, in the States, I'm, I'm aware that um, it's in medical insurance based most of the time. That's actually, um, it's different from the UK. 
So you have the option of taking medical insurance. But if you have a free healthcare system, you're thinking, why do I need medical insurance? Why do I have to waste it? But I think going forward, people are now taking a bit more of medical insurance. The advantages of that is the waiting time. So if you're on the NHS, the waiting time sometimes will be very long. And it's very long because the demand is, is high. So everybody has. Exactly. It's free to everyone. And so we have, I wouldn't call it rationing, rationing but we have prioritization things in place. So if you come to me, they tell me sometimes you cannot refer this person until you check this, 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 this. So even though I think I want to refer you now, I wouldn't. I'll have to go through some processes. Yeah. Because that's how it's going to be fair to everyone. Um, So we do have private healthcare, but it's for the rich and for the privileged is what I will say. And and it comes in useful. The other thing about the private healthcare is getting better now is most of them are one-stop shop. Okay. So for example, if you said you wanted to have an operation, you want to have an appendicectomy is quite simple. It could be a day case. But say you want to have an hysterectomy. Okay. You probably won't get it on, on, on private healthcare. The reason being, they usually don't have words that they keep patients in to manage. So what they do is they can do the surgery. So they do surgeries that are almost like day cases or maybe just one day overnight. Most of the private hospitals do not do ongoing care. So you still have to go back to the NHS. So if you have a major operation, most of the time it will be done under the NHS. Oh, because they don't follow up with you. And if you need exactly, any kind of follow exactly, up here, exactly, okay. exactly. But the good thing now is even the NHS is, is, is um, commissioning the private hospitals to take some of the work. So you might be lucky. So a friend of mine had a hysterectomy done. And because the NHS hospitals were very busy, she had it done in a private hospital. She said, my God, it was like five-star hotel. And in three days, she was out. So that was the NHS giving it to the private hospital stepping out of the room. What happens to say a person has, say, a, uh, they tear, they have an ACL of their knee, like those type of surgeries. Can that yeah. be done if they have private insurance or is that? Also, yeah, that, that, that can be done if they have private insurance because um, that's a straightforward uh, operation. And most of the time, you don't stay too long in hospital. So I've had, I've had um, relatives who have had it done privately. And that's one of the good ones that you can actually have done privately because under the NHS, there's probably a long wait. You imagine everyone with injuries, you have a long wait. It could be 12 weeks, be 18 weeks. So if you have private healthcare, that's one of the conditions that you will benefit from. So the way that works, you just go to your GP, your public practitioner and say, I want a referral. We do the letter. You take it off to your private uh, provider and they sort you out. Okay. You do a lot of teaching, education via social media on COVID-19, cervical cancers, diet, weight loss. What made you start doing that as part of education in general population? So that, that's, that's a great question. And I think it's actually very relevant and um, important to me. So as a portfolio GP and as a leader, I've always done teaching. So within the NHS, in my role, I do patient talks. I do radio shows. I talk to colleagues. So I do seminars. So I do educational programs for my colleagues, for GP colleagues, because I'm also the respiratory clinical lead for the organization. So when I do policies and I do protocols and I do guidelines, I have to do implementation. A part of my implementation process is actually running seminars, running webinars, running face-to-face educational sessions. So I've always done that. The difference this time around is in 2017, I'm sure you can walk out right now that this doctor is all over the place, loving our work and working so hard. So in 2017, I began to feel tired and I thought, hmm, you know, you're overworking yourself or you're enjoying it. You're not stretched. You're not stressed, but you're stretched. That's what I say to myself. 
So I thought, all right, what do you do now? So I thought, be a good dog. Be a good patient. Go off to your GP. So I, I, I cut it off to my GP and said, I'm feeling tired. Can I have a blood test done? To start with, I'm a GP, but I don't do GPs. I just don't do GPs. I don't. My GP never sees me because I'm, I'm, I've got a clean, clean bill of health. So I went up to my GP and said, can I have a blood test done? She said, oh, yeah, fine. You just have the basic blood test done. And what was I thinking? I was thinking, okay, maybe I was going to come up with things like thyroid disease, which if you have a low and underactive thyroid, you don't know until you check it. So I thought, oh, who knows if it's something silly like that in the background. And in fact, I wasn't expecting anything. I did it just for my peace of mind. And so I went off. And 48 hours later, I got a telephone call. Oh my days, what's going on? When you get a telephone call from your GP or family practitioner, it's saying something. So I thought, all right, what's going to happen? So off I went to the appointment. And as I got in, my GP um, said, your hemoglobin is low. Mm -hmm. And I went, hemoglobin low. What is it? It was 86. So the normal should be about um, 116. 116 to about 130 for females. So I thought, why should my hemoglobin be low? You still know my age now. Because I'm not doing my monthly periods. <laughs> so why? Why, why, yeah, why are you losing blood? Yeah, why am I losing blood? So she said to me, are you losing blood from anywhere? I said, no, no symptoms at all. All I know is I, I was getting a bit more tired than usual. So she said, oh, what's your diet like? I said, rubbish. You know, someone who's running up and down doesn't have enough time to cook the good meals she really loves. So I said, I do cook, but I'm not cooking as much as I really would want to. Um, so she said, you know what? It's, it's probably just iron dietary. And it may be that you're, you're low in iron. So just go ahead, go and use some iron tablets and come back in three months. And then we'll check it out again. So I, I, I said to her, I said, hmm, that doesn't sit right with me. Yeah, why you don't know we why do you lose yeah, blood? Exactly, exactly. Even if you were still having a sign. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I said, so I said, why don't we do one more blood, one more test? And I said, I'm being a GP. That's what I will do with my patients anyway. So I said, why don't we do one more test before you send me off with iron? And she said, okay, what do you want to do? I said, all right, let's do, uh, it's called FOB, which is fecal occult blood. And what that does is that it, um, it detects um, bleeding, um, which is not obvious, bleeding from the bowel, which is not obvious. And I hated that test because I thought, oh my God, I'm not going to go into it because it's not, it's not so pleasant to describe. But that was it sending a pool sample off to the lab. So I did it um, immediately and the result came back positive. So you had blood in your stool. I had blood, unseen blood. So uh -huh. that was blood that wasn't seen mm -hmm. in the stool. And I thought, and as a GP, I know when you have a positive fecal alcohol blood, it could only point to one major thing. And I thought, oh my days, I didn't want to hear that. Mm -hmm. In the UK, we have a wonderful system. If you, so the, 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 the first thing you need to rule out when you have a positive fecal alcohol blood is to rule out cancer. Bowel oh, cancer, cancer, yeah. Bowel cancer. So we, I, I, I use the word bowel cancer for the layman, but in the medical time is colorectal cancer. Yes. Which we uh, has been common, like in the news lately with Chadwick Boseman, because he passed away with colon cancer. Yeah, yeah. So I use the word colon cancer. So it's every, it's, we're, we're on the same page and everybody understands what I'm saying. And in the UK, we've got a wonderful system whereby if you suspect cancer, you have to refer the patient within two weeks. And that means the patient has to be seen within two weeks. We call it a two-week cancer referral. So my GP went into action straight away. 
referred me. And within a few days, I was called up because my hemoglobin was so low. I needed iron transfusion. So they gave me iron transfusion and booked me for colonoscopy. So I went for colonoscopy. And this is someone, I hate needles. I hate hospitals. I'm a GP, but I just hate it with a passion. I don't mind seeing the patients. That was a big thing for me. It, 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 it threw me off. And I thought, but. So I thought, all right, go for colonoscopy. I was still hopeful, thinking, oh, maybe the colonoscopy will just tell them. It was well, how colonoscopy. was your experience with the bowel prep for the colonoscopy? Oh, my. That's the, usually the worst part for people it who was are nervous horrible. about getting colonoscopies. It was horrible. Because, oh, I don't want to remember it. So you have to take the prep. And then you have to rush to the bathroom. Boop, 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 boop. Ah, it was, it was, it was, it wasn't pleasant. I don't want to have it again. But it had to be done because the whole idea was actually to clean out your your bowel so they can, so they can actually see properly. So I went through that. I'm being a doctor. I understood it. And I remember I have patients sometimes. It's this is this is an interesting journey because I'll tell you what has happened to me and the lessons learned from my experience. But I'll just make it, um, I'll, I'll make it one step after the other, so I'm not missing any bits. Mm-hmm. So I went off for colonoscopy, and remember I said, I don't do doctors, I don't do needles, I'm squeamish even though I'm a GP. So I thought I was really scared, and I said to the surgeon or to the uh, person doing that, I said, I, I really do want to have this. Can you put me to sleep? And they all laughed and thought, will you for a laugh? Put you to sleep, don't we? But anyway, they gave me a bit of um, sedative. Yeah, they gave me sedative, and, and so I had the colonoscopy. And they, I'm glad they did. Because when they did the colonoscopy, they found something, but they were not sure what they found. Mm-hmm. So they could only go so far. They did a biopsy. They did a biopsy. And so the reports they gave me afterwards is, we couldn't go far enough. There seems to be an obstruction somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. But the only way to know what it is exactly is to book you for surgery. So they just, they did a biopsy, which I guess explained to some listeners. That, so they took a bit of the tissue that they that was supposed to be there and send it off to the lab to see what it was. And send it off to the lab. Um, but what they did, uh, when the result came back, it was a bit inconclusive. Mm-hmm. So they weren't sure because what they did was they mapped the bowel because they said they found something that just wasn't clear. So they mapped it. And then when the results came back, it was inconclusive. They thought there might be one or two tumors. Okay. So I thought, hmm, okay. So the next thing was to book me straight away for surgery. surgery so within okay. two weeks, within two weeks from start to finish, I was enlisted for surgery. And so I went for surgery. No, before I did that, mm-hmm. I skipped a step. I skipped an important step. Okay. So when I had the colonoscopy done, mm-hmm. I went off to the surgeon to see the surgeon who then explained. At that stage, I'm a woman of faith. I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. And for me, my faith is most important. Mm-hmm. But the first thing I did was to go into denial. Mm-hmm. And it's very important that I talk about this because remember, I'm a GP. I'm well-educated. Mm-hmm. I know what to do. But I went into denial and a bit of cultural came in there And because back home, when bad things happen, you say, no, it's not for me. It's for my father's father's aunties or it's for generations gone. It's mm-hmm. for your enemy. That's what you say. Mm-hmm. So all that was played up in my mind. And I thought, how am I going to manage this? So one thing I did, which I'm glad I did, was I called up a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And that friend of mine, fortunately, was a GP colleague. She's an old friend. Mm-hmm. So I said to her, I said, I've got this, this news. Mm-hmm. I said, I know myself. I'm going to blank out. Everything said to me on that day, I'm not going to hear it. I'm, I'm just going to be able to say, I'm listening. I'm not going to hear it. I said, so I need you to come along with me because this is very important. Okay. So she went off with, she went with me. And 
thought so, my word. I heard nothing the surgeon said. I heard it. He okay. kept asking me. I just was uh, the, sur- uh, the surgeon told you you most likely have cancer. Yeah, he told me I most likely had cancer and told me I needed an operation. I was asking me questions. Do you have any questions? I just went blank. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't handle it. I just went blank. So my friend listened and asked the necessary questions. It was a good thing she was a GP. So when we left the appointment, she then said to me, I understand where you're at. I understand your feelings. He said, but time is of essence. You cannot delay. Okay. As far as this as has as to as be as done. As yes. Because uh, I needed to sign a consent form and all of that. Mm-hmm. So she said, you have to book, you have to agree to this um, surgery and it has to be done ASAP. So I said, all right. Because she was a GP, I could trust and she's an old friend. So there we are. So they, they, they booked me in for surgery. And so I went in for surgery, still in my denial face, just thinking, just hoping is all a lie. And the surgeon said to me when I went in, my other fear was the fact that he said I could have, I could end up with a stoma bag. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my God, this is me. My life shattered if I had that. So I sort of went back to my faith, which is where I am on to whenever things don't seem to go out going well. Yeah. Um, so I just, I just, I just went into prayer mode. Yeah, and just like you don't have it. no control. Let God yeah, take care of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just committed it to God because it says, "Casting all your cares and burdens upon me, for I care." So I thought, Scripture just kept coming to me. So things like be anxious for nothing, or we pray and supplications, make all your requests known. So I went back to my default and left it there, and I went for the surgery. The surgery took eight hours. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a successful surgery because I slept all through it. I didn't even know when it was done. They just woke me up afterwards. Mm-hmm. And the good news was the surgeon, interestingly, the surgeon, I said my, my second daughter is a doctor. My second daughter was working in the hospital where I had the surgery, mm-hmm. and it was her team that was doing my surgery. Okay. That was quite interesting. So that was a blessing. That was a big blessing. So the surgeon actually took special interest. He paid a little bit more attention, one being a colleague, one being the mom of his trainee. So mm-hmm. I thought, mm, interesting. You're in good hands. Yeah, I was in really good hands. And that also gave me confidence. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to worry over, over, over much. So when we left this, at the end of the surgery, he said to me, he said, congratulations. I know you didn't want the stomach back and you did have it. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was a, a shed weight off my shoulders. So then I went into the recovery ward, and then they had an enhanced recovery program. So when I had they, the surgery. What did they actually do? Did you have a, like a? So I had a right, I had a right hemicolectomy. Okay. So they took out from the transverse to round about the the the, the round about the sigmoid. So they cut so, and then they they joined it. They were able to to to, to, to join it. up. So he was concerned that depending on where, and there were actually two cancers there. There were two. Oh, did they actually sit like when you were in the surgery? Did they send it to pathology and look at it? Right yeah, they sent. Yeah, they sent it to pathology, and I think the report came back as T three N one M zero. So T will be the the staging mm-hmm. where where it sits. The N is the nodes. So one, it had one of the nodes. So they took about 21 nodes and just one had a little bit of like, it was almost leaking out, but there was no metastasis. So they so it made had it. Spread. It had, yeah, yeah, that's right. So they made it, as, they actually made it. I, it's amazing. It was when I was going to do this talk, I went back to, because what I did was ask for my all my reports, but I never read it. I never read it. So when I was going to do this talk, I now went back to go and find out what exactly it was. And it was quite interesting to find out what it was because I, I knew, I knew, I, I, I looked at it, but I didn't take it in. Yeah. So it was, um, it was like a Duke, Duke stage two. 
or um, was was what 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 the diagnosis was. So, so explain that to my non-medical listeners what that means. Okay, so when you when they take the sample out, what they do is they actually classify it. So you classify it according to the histology, which is the biopsy that you take. So they look at the staging. The T in there is actually the tumor. Mm-hmm. So how has it spread? And they can okay. classify it from one to four. Mm-hmm. And then they look at the nodes. So the N is the nodes. And like it's your lymph how, nodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like your lymph nodes. So has it gone past the mucosa? Is it localized? Which is the, the covering, the mucosa is the covering. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. Sorry, I'm using medical terms. So they do that. And then the, ne- the, the M is the metastasis. And that's if it has spread beyond the right. bowel. Mm-hmm. So we know when people have cancer, if it's not picked up early, it could go to the lungs, it could go to the kidneys. It's spread like stage four means it's all over. Yeah, that's that's what, exactly, what all exactly, over. exactly. So the, the, the lower the number, the better. So if you have oh, a you stage have a one, I have a two. And it was, um, so what they did was they did um, surgery with adjuvant chemotherapy. chemotherapy. So the surgery took out, took out the whole tumor mass. Wow. So they took that out. And so chemo is for the part that spread. That, yeah, exactly, chemo. exactly, exactly. And they do adjuvant chemo. They call it adjuvant because it's, it's sort of like curative chemo. And the reason why they do that is sometimes the spread is so little, it's very minute that you can't see it. Mm-hmm. But what chemotherapy does is it goes into anywhere that it's gone to and just kills it, 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 kills it really. So that was what they did. And that's what I heard, really. Then I had the surgery, and interestingly, after surgery, I was fine. So they had a program there, which was called the Enhanced Program, mm-hmm. and which means within 48 hours, you can go home. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, that was really wonderful. And one of the major side effects of the operation, which was hammered into me, was the fact that you could have paralytic eyelids. Paralytic eyelids simply means your bowels can go silent. Okay. Not working at all. And that's one of the major complications. So they had told me that that was the one that they really wouldn't want to have. So day two, I was fine. I was eaten. Day two, I was already up and eaten. My bowels were moving. One of the signs they look for is if you're past gas. Yeah, if you're past gas. Yeah. So I passed gas within twenty, within six hours. So that was fine. So then they came with meal, and I think I did a boo boo. You ate too much. I ate too much. (laughs) And I ate the wrong stuff. Mm -hmm. So I got them to bring me popcorn. I'm sure everybody knows what popcorn is. I don't know what got into my head, but I was so well that I thought, whoa, I'm going home now. And I ate my popcorn and trouble started. And my bowels ceased. Oh, okay. So for 10 days, I couldn't Nothing. shift my bowels. It was horrible. It was scary. It was scary. Um, and so Valine, you need, I had to have CT scans done. I had to have several investigations done to find out what was going on. And it really was paralytic eyelids. And at a point in time, yeah. At, 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 some, at a point in time, they were actually going to take me into surgery, into make sure. theater for another for another surgery. But like I said, I'm a woman of faith. I, I believe God stepped in because at a point in time, I think after nine days, my surgeon was very distressed because he was going away on holiday. Mm-hmm. So two days after my operation, he was happy that I was doing well. I said, we're going to discharge you. And then the complications came. The complications came on the day he was being away on holiday and it was really sad. He said, I'm so sorry. I wish I could stay back and, so, and walk this journey with you. Why I have to go? This was just before Christmas. And so he rallied his colleagues and, and they, they, they were all good. They were very professional. So that went on. And then on day nine, 
I can remember very well in the morning they had rallied. They wanted to take me to theater earlier on, but it didn't work out because obviously there's a list and all of that. So on, on day nine, they came in the morning, all geared up to take me to theater. And what they were going to do was to open me up again and probably give me a trans um, parental nutrition. So because I had to be near by mouth. What people yeah. So, so when you can't, when you've had surgery and you can't take anything in, they would give you food through um, online. TPN. TPN, yeah. So um, they give you food through online so that, because you need like the, mm -hmm. yeah, like IV. Yeah. So you need that to actually get the healing process going properly. Mm -hmm. And the nutrition. Because you're not eating and, and the nutrition. So that, so that was what they were going to do. So they came in on a Monday morning. The whole mm -hmm. team came up, you know, ready. Dr. Kikud, now we're going to take you to theatre. And this, the for surgery. me, that was a miracle. To, yeah, to, to the surgery. That, for me, that was a miracle. And as they so came in, my started working? Like when they came in, they came in. Okay. Just as they came in, my bowels was moving. That's, hold on, hold on, hold on. I need to go to the now bathroom. Wait, stop. <laughs> stop, stop. And they looked at each other and said, oh, that's what's it out then. Off we go. And they went off. You know what happened? I got to the bathroom and nothing happened. And I thought, oh my days, what's going on here? So they had dispersed because obviously I was on emergency. I was on the emergency list and they had a long list. So off they went to go and do the other things which they needed to do. So I thought, but for me as a woman of faith, what it meant to me was that God was doing something. Mm -hmm. Season two, I will start a new series called Ask the Doc. If you have questions related to musculoskeletal injuries or musculoskeletal health, please send me a voicemail. Go to my website at www.weouilove.com, click on the tab Voicemail, leave your voicemail, and select messages will be aired and answered on the segment. Now, back to the episode. So the nasogastric tube was put in just to take out the air and the excess fluid in the tummy. And then my bowels opened. So, and then I was able to tolerate orally to eat food and move my bowels. So they discharged me from hospital on the 23rd of December. Um, the good thing was, because I didn't know this was going to happen, I'd booked Christmas away with the family, with the extended family. So I had booked Christmas away to a hotel for all of us to go in. So we all went there. And the thing is, I didn't tell anyone. You didn't tell anyone about other than your friend that was a GP? I told the GP and my doctor daughter. Okay, but no I one else. I didn't tell my senior daughter because she was in the States. You didn't want her to worry. She was, yeah. I didn't want her to worry. So when she came back, when she heard I was in hospital, she came back to the UK, met me in hospital, said, mom, what's going on? I said, we'll talk about it later. So I didn't say anything about it. And she's a bit very emotional. So I knew it was going to really affect her. And remember, this was seven months after I lost my husband. So there was a lot going on. Mm -hmm. so, so I booked, and yes, we had booked this holiday away with a big extended family. So I got back home on the 23rd and I went to the holiday site on the 24th. This is very interesting. So we had booked holiday, hotel rooms and all of that. So I got in there and there was food. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So on the 25th, on Christmas Day, of course, we were all jollying and, and I, I was, they just noticed I was quiet because I'm quite a vibrant and um, a person. So they thought, what's wrong with you? I just said, I'm tired. You know what I did? They brought food and I 
ate it. You ate, I you ate. ate? I ate a big bowl of rice, forgetting I just had surgery. So how did it go? Doctor. My daughter, doctor, was, she panicked. She said, mom, how could you have done that? He was fine. You're fine, okay. He was fine. But oh, that, it was but fine? That, that's, that tells you how well I felt and how stupid we can be. You think she's a GP? She should know better. Uh, but that was it. So um, that was a wake up call. So I then thought, all right, fine. So you didn't have any other issues? I didn't have any other issues. Did you have fine. any issues with chemo after surgery? So in so January, so then they had a, so in the UK, you have an MDT meeting. So after surgery, which is a multidisciplinary, a multidisciplinary team meeting where you have the oncologists, the surgeon, the nurses, you have the whole works, the dietitians, all of them meet together, look at the reports and then make a decision. So they had that meeting and then wrote up to me. In the interim, I was praying I wouldn't have chemo. I prayed and prayed and prayed and thought, oh, God, I'm not going to have chemo. But then the letter came and said I needed chemo. So I went for chemotherapy. The good news, the good news in all of this, because there's a lot of good news in there, and I believe it's just, just God having my back. Uh, and this is going to answer why I decided to. But how long did you do chemo, though? This is the good thing. Okay. When I met the oncologist, Mm-hmm. I am fortunate that I met an oncologist that is up to date. We all know as physicians that we're more up to date than each other. But mm-hmm, this oncologist yeah. I met had just been to a conference which said, which had told them that for bowel cancer, for colon cancer, you can actually have treatment for three months instead of six months. Okay. So he said, latest research. So he said to me, Dr. Kiko, up to speed with the treatment, you're only going to have three months. He said, if okay. you had come one week before, I would have told you three months. Uh, six months. Six months. He said, but this time around, you're going to have it for only three months. So I had chemo for three months. That was a big blessing in this. And that was it. Yeah, and that was it. You didn't. You did okay with it. Did you lose your uh, hair? Have any side effects? Um, I didn't. So I didn't lose my hair because he said to me, I had capi, cap, I can't pronounce it. I can't pronounce the name. Capibetin. No, I can't pronounce it. Sorry. So I had the the treatment I had. He said to me that it wouldn't affect my hair, so I didn't lose my hair. But what the major side effect was during the chemo. So I had one day of IV, intravenous infusion, mm-hmm. and then three weeks of tablets. Pills, okay, just pills. So, okay. the, so the one day of IV was, the, was terrible. The first one, I reacted so badly. I was sick. I was, I was, I was dizzy. I went really down. Mm-hmm. So and they didn't know what to do. Every medication they gave me didn't work. Didn't work. So, Post-chemo, when I had my follow-up appointment, I said to him, as a GP, I think I was a little bit privileged, I said, you know what, I'm going to ask for a specific tablet, which an anti-emetic, which I'm going to take before the chemo, and that should deal with it. So I, and they normally don't give that. It's um, proclopirazine, bucostem. So it's one of those tablets that you put on the, under your upper lip. You don't have to take it with water. They were giving me something different, which wasn't working for me. So what he said, he said, okay, since you know what you're doing and you're a medical doctor and it's allowable, we don't use it normally, but we'll give it to you. So I, I got that tablet. So before I go for chemo, I take one hour before and that was it for my chemotherapy. I had no other reactions. I was so fine. So other than that one, the first time? Yeah, other than the first time, I was fine. Um, obviously, I had to take time off work. So for three months, I, I, I refused. I didn't see any, no patient contact at all. But I could still do a bit of telephone triage from home because I was well in myself. So I could still sit at home. It's just I had to avoid infection, getting infection from patients because obviously I was immunocompromised on chemotherapy. So that went on and I finished chemo after three months. Thereafter, I then had to do regular blood tests just to check the inflammatory markers. And then 
I then had to do regular colonoscopy. How many years do you have for to do? For three years. So every I had to three? do it for three years. So okay. I had to do regular CT scans every initially because they had two tumors found. He said, classified me as high risk. So he said he was going to do CT scans every three months initially. And then he went on to six monthly. And then the chemo, the colonoscopy, he did six monthly in the first year and then yearly for three years. And in July 2019, no, what am I July 2020, July 2020, I got the all clear, for which I'm very grateful. So now to why am I doing what I'm doing? After this event in my life, mm -hmm. I sat back and I reflected on my journey in life. Mm -hmm. So I just lost my husband who was mm -hmm. long-term ill. So I was going through a turbulent period in my life, trying to cope with the grief and also with the children. And then this cancer diagnosis came along. And then mm -hmm. I sat back and I thought, if I had died, what would have been said of me? Mm -hmm. Yes, I was making a living, but mm -hmm. was I making a difference? No, I wasn't making a difference. I was making a living because my profession... And you were making a difference too. Are you sure you might have not been in the way you wanted to, but you were making a difference in your patients' lives? Yes, I was making a difference in my profession and in my vocation. But then that took me back to purpose. Why am I leaving? Purpose. Okay, why are you living? So when yeah. I say I'm not making a difference, yes, thanks for correcting me. It's, I'm always making a difference. But it was, what am I fulfilling purpose? I see. I understand. So I went for a master class. And in there, it was like, where, why are you leaving? What is your purpose on li in, in life? And at that stage, I sat back and I thought, you know what? Whatever I'm doing, I'm being paid for it. I'm being paid for my profession and my vocation. And that's very good. But I thought, what are you giving back? Okay. And that was when, and that was when I thought and I said, okay, I am a doctor. I love doing it. And I can give something back to people out there. And that's how come I thought, okay. There is, and then some of the things that happened when I got the diagnosis was my oncologist said to me, which is my cancer doctor, said to me, Dr. Kuku, watch your diet, change your diet. And I thought, change your diet? What does that mean? I went to the dietitians, and for me, it was almost like a tick box exercise. It didn't add up to me. So I then, because it wasn't specific for, my, for the bowel cancer, it was just general advice. And I thought, mm -hmm. I know all this. There's nothing new in what you're telling yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. So I had to get on YouTube, actually. I had to get yeah. on YouTube. And YouTube I is wonderful. It. It's awesome. As I was searching for bowel cancer and diet, and I found a loadful, a loadful. Some of the things I found was, first of all, I cut out red meat. Oh, red meat totally. is a no-no total. And some of the impactful things that actually changed my life was the fact that I like smoked meat. Smoked mm -hmm. turkey, it's nice. But I realized the smoking, the nitrites that come it from it. Carcinogens. Carcinogens. So while I was doing my study, then I, I learned about alkaline foods that are good okay. for the bowel. Put it I for the about, body. Exactly. Yeah. I learned about alkaline water. These are mm -hmm. things that I, I don't drink anything except alkaline water. I got my alkaline filter there. I cannot, if I'm going out, I take my water with me. Or if mm -hmm. it's not 7.5 and above. So this changed your life. It has changed it my life. Changed your life completely. Completely. So as a GP, I thought I did not know that as a GP. So mm -hmm. I thought there are people out there that Who need this information. They okay. don't know it. So I thought, okay, what am I going to do? And that's my health promotion bit. Okay. That's my health promotion bit. The COVID-19, I, I got into COVID-19 talks because it was found that the Black Asian, Black Asian minority ethnic groups do are worse. not taking yep. the vaccine. Yep. They're refusing yep. the vaccine because of yep. this drug. 
because of yep. misconception, because of yep. misinformation, because of so many things. So I thought, you know what? It is important that we connect with each other. So because they will only listen to people they trust. And mm -hmm. I thought, I'm black, so I can talk to my people. Yeah. So that's how come I got into talking about COVID-19 vaccination. Also, the fact that when the vaccination was announced, I was very anti-vaccine initially. And why was I? Because I didn't have information. You had I was the same way. I wasn't anti. I just needed more information before I decided to do it. And before I told my friends yeah. and my patients yeah. that I would recommend yeah. it. Yeah. So I, I say anti because I just said to anyone who asked me, leave me out of it for now. I'll like, get back with comment. you. Yeah. After I, I give my information. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then when I, when, I, when I said that, then I thought, okay, the best thing to do is to go out and find out what information is out there get the right information and make the right informed decision. So that's how come I got into COVID-19. And I am pleased to say that almost every weekend I have talks. I have talks even during the week. Yes, which is how one. I met you on yeah. Clubhouse and COVID talk. <laughs> it's a passion. It's a passion. <laughs> and there is a need out there. And I think for me, the, the driving force for me is that I can see the positive impact. So I have people getting in touch with me to say, I listened to your talk. I've got one on YouTube. It's got about 300 and something views. They said, once I listen to your talk, I'm going for my vaccine. Well, so the first wonderful. thing I did was I got my vaccination. Yes. I don't, I, you, you, you walk you the can't, walk. You can't preach it if exactly. you have to do it yourself. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So you lead by example. So I went and got the vaccine and I put my vaccinating arm on my DP so people mm -hmm. can see it. And people just kept getting in touch with me. Oh, thank you. We trust you. If you got it, we'll get it. Somebody actually said to me, she had an appointment on that day. She was going to cancel it. She said, but now that you've got it, I will go and get it. And so the uptake has increased. And the more we talk about it, the more we, we debunk the myths, the more people go for the vaccine, vaccination. And what I say to people every time I have my talk is that I'm not trying to convince you. I'm trying just to want to educate you, you. I'm trying to educate you so you can make an informed, informed decision. decision. Yes. And that's what is important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Totally agree. Totally and why agree. did I pick menopause? I picked menopause and women's health because I realized out here in the UK, I chair an organization that delivers primary care services. And I found there's a very big need. There's a gap in education on menopause. There are a lot of people out there that feel they're going through menopausal symptoms, but they can't talk about it. Is it taboo? It's for some people, it's taboo because it tells your age <laughs> to start with. And women don't like to talk about their age. Also, is the fact that a lot of healthcare professionals are not up to date on it. Mm -hmm. A lot of people struggle on it. So I then decided that what I was going to do was actually go for a course on it so I can talk as an authority on it. Because the menopause is also very tricky because you have so many sides to it. And you have mm -hmm. the mood, you have the anger, you have, there's so many sides to it. Yeah, and, and, and women are different. Everybody's exactly, different too. Exactly. So I decided that I will take that up as um, something to give back to women and to get to education to help people um, go through the journey because you can still live life you need to know the number of women that are miserable angry you know marriages are breaking up just because they don't recognize that it's due to menopause, menopause. and there's treatment for it there's treatment for it you don't have to suffer menopause yeah so there we are yeah <laughs> yeah knowledge is power and i say knowledge well applied is power because sometimes what we also get is people have knowledge but they don't apply it and that's the worst kind of knowledge you can have. Knowledge is power. That's true. That's so true. That's true. 
That's true. So part of my uh, podcast, Run is Cheaper Than Therapy, is about people who have overcome obstacles to make it to their finish line. And you have overcome a lot of obstacles, particularly with your um, cancer um, diagnosis. Are there other obstacles in your life that you've overcome? Can you share those with my listeners? Just as far as your practice or, or being a, a Black female in your profession or in any other instances? Yeah, so I think the other obstacle, which is actually quite um, important to me was looking after a loved one mm-hmm. who is long-term ill. So my husband had kidney problems and over a period of time, he actually deteriorated quite fast. Mm-hmm. And with the kidney problems, he there was no cure for it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he didn't embrace the treatment early enough mm-hmm. because he was a young, active person. And he just couldn't take it in that he had to go on dialysis Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it was very difficult balancing work with looking after a loved one who is unwell long term. Mm -hmm. It's different if someone has appendicitis, you can just have the operation. Couple days, yeah. Yeah. But with this one, it was actually coping with the work as a GP, which we all know could be very stressful. Because no matter what's going on in your life, when you go to work, you leave it behind. And you deal with your patients. You pick it up when you leave work. So I found that very challenging. And I, I think the way I went through that was, as usual, I go back to the scriptures and use positive words, wake up in the morning, focus on the positive, use words of affirmation, go back to my faith. Mm-hmm. And that's how I went through it. In terms of being a, a black medical professional, I will say I have been very lucky. I have been very fortunate. And I say I've, I've been very fortunate because I got into leadership on an easy platform. I mm-hmm. think because I'm a dynamic speaker and I'm also very proactive, mm-hmm. I get picked up very easily. So mm-hmm. I have sat on several boards, several committees, mm-hmm. and wherever I am, most of the time, I'm the only colored person. But the fact that I'm the only colored person doesn't floor me. They hear my voice. My voice is heard where it needs to be heard. So I think to the listeners, I want to encourage us to be you. Be you. You can only be you. And when you are you, then you make a positive impact. Every one of us have a voice is needed. Every one of us has a message and we have to be positive. I think I don't see, I don't see negativity. Every time there's a negative situation, I look at it as half full rather than half empty. And I think that actually propels me on, especially during this pandemic. A lot of people are down. Earlier today, I had a live session on mental health. Mm -hmm. And that's because during the pandemic, there's lockdown. We can't go out to the gyms. We can't mix, meet up with people that we love. But there are ways around it. Mindfulness, yoga, exercise, healthy lifestyle options. There are things. And I say, if you can conquer it in your mind, you can conquer it all over. So it just has to start with a winner's mindset and a positive mindset. It is okay to ask questions. If you have questions, ask those questions. But when you ask those questions, look for the answer in the right places. Some people would need counseling. What I haven't said was I actually had to go to counseling. I'm a very stoic person and I think, well, I'm very strong. I can do it. I can make it. And I'm saying this because I talk about a winner's mindset. I talk about an overcomer's mindset. But see, you have to be vulnerable unto yourself. 
True. And you have to be real unto yourself. True. So even though I was sort of like, oh, I'm fine, I'm strong, I can do it, I can make it. But I'm sometimes you need some help. Yeah. I got to the stage where I acknowledged the fact that I needed help. Yeah, I was there too. Yeah. And I went for counseling mm-hmm. and counseling turned my life around. Yes. Because what counseling does is a problem half shared is half solved. I like that statement. A problem half shared is half solved. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it teases out those things that you, because what we do is we pull down shutters. We pull down, we just cover it. We put the cloth over it. And what counseling does is it opens it up. And then it helps you to unpick it in a safe environment. Yes. So I'll say to everyone, you've got more than you take. You're more than a conqueror. You're more than a winner. But please ask for help. You don't have to go through yes. this on your own. Yes. You don't have yes. to go through it on your own. Yes. Find a partner. Find a friend. Find a loved one. Find somebody. And if you think, oh, I don't have anyone, there's support organizations out there. They're waiting for you. They're willing to help you. Yes. And... At the end of it, you come out smiling. Remember, there's light at the end of the tunnel. The tunnel may be long, but you have to get to the light. Don't give up. When there is hope, there is a way. Where there is a willingness, there is a way. True. Wow. I had the same problem. I'm a physician and I had clinical depression after my mother passed away. And I didn't want to I didn't want to get help. My friend basically gave me this analogy. He was like, if a patient came with a broken bone, since I'm orthopedics, would I tell the patient to fix it themselves. I'm like, no, that's silly. He yeah. said, why are you trying to fix yourself? And after exactly. he said that, it made sense. And I went and got a counselor. But it took him it telling me that in kind yes, of layman's terms it is. It is. It is. to follow his advice, which is what I tell other people. Sometimes sometimes it's hard being a patient or being like feeling vulnerable. Question for you. You mentioned exercise as far as mental health. When you were going through your... um treatment or when you were going through your healing, did you use exercise as part of your healing process after you were stable? Yes, I did. Because interestingly, before I went for treatment, before I got the diagnosis, when I hit 50, my present to myself was to learn swimming. Oh, wonderful. So I went, oh, it was hard because I couldn't float. But then I learned swimming <laughs> yes, at age 50. It's that was my present. I learned swimming three years ago. Well, yeah, about three, four years ago myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was so, I found it was such fun, but yeah. you know, one of the lessons I learned was I was so tense. So they said, relax, relax, relax. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't float. But when I started swimming, it was great. It was, it's, and then I used to go for water aerobics and I found that very useful because part of the reasons why I wasn't going for exercises was the pain. When I do exercise, I get pain and then I, I attribute exercise to pain. So I keep away from it. Mm-hmm. But when I was going for water exercise, I, I got over that. But when I got the diagnosis, my, my, my oncologist said to me, you cannot go swimming. And I went, that was a bombshell for me. I went, and he explained to me, he said, because you increase your risk of infection, there's chlorine in there, there are other people in there, you have to keep away until you. you heal. So I couldn't go for exercise during treatment. But what I did was inside the house, I did exercise in my little way. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I have a gym in the house. So I have a room that's set up with gym exercises. So what I did was to go on the treadmill and just do wrist walking, working, just generally. Then I do press-ups. I just do those little squats. So mm-hmm. I did exercise. And what exercise does is it actually helps your, it helps your whole body. It actually, it, it improves your oxygenation. It, 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 it revitalizes you. Serotonin. Exactly, exactly. 
So exercise is key. And I don't play with exercise. I'm a bit spoiled because I what I did was I invested in quite a few things. So I have a steam room. So what I do now is I, when I go into the steam room, I actually do my exercises. So I do my press-ups and I do it underwater because like I said, sometimes when I do it, I get pain, but I don't let the pain stop me. If you are consistent, initially when you start the exercise, so the recommendation is that you do at least 30 minutes brisk walking five days a week, mm -hmm. minimum. And you can do that very easily. Go up and down the stairs. Go up mm -hmm. and down the stairs, walk up and down. You can get that easily. But I said, go a bit further than that if you can, when you can, by doing just those little bits. The key thing is consistency. When you do it consistently, it becomes a habit. Mm -hmm. And when it becomes a habit, then you get over the pain and you get over the limitations. Mm -hmm. So yes, exercise is key. And I, can't, I don't play with it. I just make sure because that, that's what keeps me young. I believe I'm very young. Yes. Age is just a number. Exactly. <laughs> what I hear from your story from is listen to your body. Yes. Well said. And be an advocate for yourself because you are a health advocate for yourself when you were tired. Because if you had just ignored it and then listened to your body, it could have been a different story. Well said, well said. And that is the key message. Listen to your body. If I hadn't, this, it would have spread. And by the time they pick it up, it will be too late. So listen to your bodies first and then do something about it. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we listen and we rationalize it away. So I did that for a bit. But eventually I thought, no, this is not making sense. This is not adding up. Go to your GP. So go to your healthcare professional. After you've gone to the healthcare professional, Take the right steps. And if you get a diagnosis that you don't understand, ask questions. Mm -hmm. I find a lot of patients come along and they don't ask questions. They don't ask questions. Rather, they go to Mr. Google. Mr. Google is fine, but Mr. Google is not real. No. Mr. Google is, is, um, is, is, is generic. And you are not generic. You're an individual. Mm -hmm. yeah. so when you ask the questions, you have the right answers for you yes. as an individual. Yep. And that's very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the next and the next step to that is then maintain a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. Diet, exercise, sleep, 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 <laughs> sleep, sleep. Dr. K, sleep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm preaching to myself also. The ideal is you should have at least six hours sleep, minimum of six hours. If you're good, you have eight hours. Eight, yeah. You have yeah. eight hours if you're good. I said minimum of six because I'm talking to myself. You yeah, know, I too. do like Jason. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it is ideal. And when you sleep, get good sleep. Get good sleep. Play soft music. Have a warm shower before you go to bed and switch off. Switch yeah. off. It's very important because some people go to bed and still don't switch off. Mm -hmm. They don't sleep. A yes. friend of mine said she doesn't have a television in her room mm -hmm. because that way she doesn't get distracted. So mm -hmm. we're all different, but sleep is very important. So we've talked about exercise. We've talked about sleep. I was also talk about water. Mm -hmm. A mm -hmm. lot of people miss that out. It is very important that you take at least six to eight glasses of water a day. Yes. Two to three liters of water. Which I'm bad about that myself, but yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I say water, <laughs> let's make it water. Not soda. <laughs> <laughs> not soda. Soda yeah. was one of the things I cut out because it's not good for me. If you've had bowel cancer, you want to keep away from it. Mm -hmm. It's very dangerous. So if I had my diagnosis, I couldn't drink anything. I couldn't take water. What? Water? I had to color it. I had to do whatever. But you see, when cancer hit me, 
I knew if I want to live a long time yeah, or not, drink water. I need to take the right decisions. <laughs> so now I can't even, if I have juice in the fridge, I can't take it. The other thing I learned was juicing. Mm-hmm. So one of the lessons I learned on this journey was, and this was very key to me because what I found was that I had a juicer, but my juicer, so there are different kinds of juicers. You have the centrifugal, which spins it, spins it, spins it, and gets it out. I have the masticator. The mm-hmm. masticating does it very slowly and preserves the nutrient. Mm-hmm. For someone like me that actually had my bowel shortened, mm-hmm. I didn't want too much of fiber because if your bowel is shortened, you want yeah. to make it easy on your bowel. Mm-hmm. So what, the first thing I had to do was to get a masticating juicer. Mm-hmm. And because the masticating juicer does the juices, so carrot is one thing. Carrot. I, 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 mm-hmm. carrot juice, I don't miss it. But the thing I learned with that, and I'm glad, thank you, thank you to YouTube, was that People take juices, but they don't take the nutrient is gone. You know, if you have carrot juice, mm-hmm. I use a masticating juicer. Mm-hmm. You need to take it within one hour. Okay. It's out of the fridge. Because if you put it in mm-hmm. because you, it loses the nutrient. Mm-hmm. If you put it in the fridge, it could last for a bit longer. Mm-hmm. And if you freeze it. So what I find people do. So the other day I went to the store and I thought, oh, I want carrot juice. And I thought, what do you have to said? Frozen carrot juice. I went, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I think we need to pay attention to the details. The other thing I personally decided to do was to invest in organic foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the way I look at it, it is expensive. And a lot of people say, oh, I can't afford it. But mm-hmm. I, I want us to stop and think. So I could buy a bag for 500 pounds, mm-hmm. a designer bag. Yet, I, I said to myself at that stage, oh, it's too expensive. I can't buy it. What is 500 pounds equal to? So in 500 pounds in dollars. I'll make it about $900. Yeah, okay. And that's a cheap designer bag, if I'm okay. real. That's a very okay. cheap designer bag. I'm trying to be modest on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you see, then I go to the store and I say the carrot, a bag of carrot is one, let's say $1, $1.50 is about one pound. Mm-hmm. While the other one is about 55p. And I'm saying I can't afford it. Mm-hmm. I think it just takes us thinking about it. I mean, not to say we're rich, but you spend money on what's valuable to you. You, exactly. you prioritize what's important to you. Exactly. Like, you know, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So rather than buy soda, I buy the organic foods. Yeah. Because I know it doesn't have the pesticides. Why is it important? It doesn't have the pesticides. And the other thing Very it cool. does for me is to prevent, it saves me from that. Because if I don't buy the organic one, then I have to peel off the carrots. And that is, that's a big chore. But with this one, I just put the whole thing in there. It's, I clean it up. It's organic. There are no pesticides on it, and I'm good to go. So mm-hmm. juicing is also good. I'm also mm-hmm. going to mention something else, which people tend to ignore, sugar. Yeah, sugar. We need to avoid sugar. Has Pro- especially processed sugar. Yes. Processed sugar. Processed sugar. Yes. Yeah, natural. Yeah, natural sugar is yeah. good. And also, we need to watch it. You know, one of the things I fell victim for was initially I used to do a lot of smoothie. Mm-hmm. But we need to be careful because when you, if you take, uh, for example, if you take apple, oranges, and a lot of those, there's a lot of sugar in there. Mm-hmm. So you think yes, you're not sure. having sugar, but you are having a lot of yeah. sugar. So if you take that every day, large amounts, you're consuming a lot of sugar. Yeah. So that, that you need, we need to pay attention to our sugar content. I wouldn't talk about salt. We know we shouldn't be adding salt on the table. If we add salt on the table, you increase your risk of high blood pressure, which then damages your arteries and the complications come with it. So sugar and salt on the table is not good. Yes, alcohol is good if you like to take it. I personally don't take alcohol. But you're allowed alcohol and you're allowed up to 14 units in a week. So 14 I say units? That 14 in, units in a week, in seven days. So I, I don't know what say, you 14 units is in, in, would you say, ounces? What's that? You know, it's America. We're just off. <laughs> yeah. 
But the way you can do that is if you put it into Google, it'll convert it for oh, you. Yes, yes. <laughs> if you go on my page, if you go on my Instagram okay. handle, I'm okay. going to talk on alcohol and the units are in there. You can actually okay, okay. see it on there. So okay. go on Healing G-Zone and you will Which see I'll the talk. I'll put that link in the show notes. Yeah. So. You see the talk on alcohol because I did a good talk on that. So okay. I said to my patients, you can have 40 units per week. I said, oh, thank you, doctor. This weekend I'm going to have 40 units. No, 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 no. Two units a day. You cannot binge drink. You cannot take it all over the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> you take two units a day. If you miss your two units, forget it. You've lost that bit. The next day, two units maximum. The reason being, if you take it all at once, you damage your liver. You flog your liver. You damage your liver. And nobody wants And no one damage. wants that. Liver is very no. important. You realize when, it, when you have liver failure how important your liver is. That's right. To overall function. That's right. And then if you smoke. Don't. Don't. If you do, but what? Don't. Yeah, don't. Don't. <laughs> and if you don't, don't. No, don't. Smoke. So the outside smoke, don't. If you don't, don't. If you do, don't. <laughs> don't, yes. All right. Any last minute words of advice you give my listeners? I'm going to put in the show notes where to find you. Thank you. Any last minute words of advice to my listeners? Um, uh, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'd like to say life is a journey. It sure is. And life will throw things at you. But what you need to do is if life gives you lemons, you make lemonade out of it. Amen. You can stay in control. It all starts in your mind. So you need the winner's mindset. You need the overcomer's mindset. And if you are connected to your creator, remember he's got your back. Yes. So when you feel overwhelmed, there's a, there's a psalmist that says, when I feel overwhelmed, lead me to that rock that is higher than I. I am a testimony of the goodness of God. And so even when I'm doing my health promotion, mm -hmm. I am an intersection between faith and medicine. Yes, yes. Without faith, I wouldn't be alive. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes the difference sometimes between somebody that goes through it and comes out on the other side and the other person that goes through it and doesn't come out on the other side. So even with my patients, I encourage them to be positive. I encourage them to be positive. Even if they don't believe in God, I still say, have a positive mindset. Yes. Positive affirmations. Mm -hmm. If you do that every day, there is someone who is watching out for you and he's just waiting for you to connect. And through positive, positive energy, positive attraction. And if you do that, if you're a Christian, you use the word of God. If you're not a Christian, ask the questions and you will get the answers. So remember, you are more than a conqueror. So yes. Do not Amen. Give up. Do not give up. Do not give up. God has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. He says we have been blessed with spiritual blessings in heavenly places, but we have to leave it. And I'm going to send a word out to Christians, if you don't mind. As Christians, sometimes we refuse to take medication. We refuse to take treatment. But I'm saying to Christians, pray, talk to God. Medicine was made by God. In Revelations, the Bible talks about the leaves will be used to make medicine. Well, you have to leave to give your testimony. So if I did not go for treatment, I wouldn't be here sharing this with you. So it is very important 
that you use science. God has provided us with science. And what I say to people is, put your faith in the God of the medicine, not the medicine. So when I was having chemotherapy, I took Holy Communion every day. Mm -hmm. And that's because I believe in the finished work of Christ. Yes. So when I take it, I say, Christ, you died for me. You took my sickness and my diseases. As I take this medication, I tap into the victory on the cross of Calvary. And I did that every day. So I did not have side effects. I did not have side effects. I could live my life. So connect, 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 connect. Connect to your creator. Don't give up. Do not give up. And above it all, stay positive. And during the pandemic, remember to stay safe. Wash your hands. Put on your face mask and social distance whenever necessary. Yes. Thank you for listening. I'm very grateful. Thank you for joining me. That wraps up this episode of Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If you already haven't, please download Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on Apple, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or possible show topics, please email runitischeaperthantherapy, O-L-B, Omaha Love Brown. Again, that's runitischeaperthantherapy, Omaha Love Brown, at gmail.com. I also can be reached via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Handle We Life, We Love. O-U-I Life, O-U-I Love. Thank you, and please tune in again.